I want to start this week with a question for us to ponder. Why do we follow God? What is it that makes us decide to trust Jesus instead of not? Now, I think some people might kind of shrug and say, well, I don't know, because God exists (laughs) or because I believe the stories about Jesus are true or something like that. But I want us to push a bit deeper than that today, because that's really only part of an answer. I say that because what we're going to see today is a story that juxtaposes two possible reasons for following God, or the gods, lowercase and plural. They show us that because God exists really only gets us partway there. We could choose not to trust a God that we believe exists, to not follow them, I'd argue that many churches have plenty of people who believe a God exists, but show with their actions every day that they more or less choose not to follow that God in any meaningful way. So why do we follow God? What are we looking for or expecting when we make that choice? The juxtaposition I mentioned occurs between the story of Moses receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, which Meredith spoke about last time, and what immediately follows that. In fact, in the context of the narrative arc of Exodus, the story we're going to look at today almost interrupts the instructions that God is giving to Moses. It's a jarring break from Moses' time with God on the mountainside. It's the story that's often called the golden calf. Although several of the scholars I read pointed out that the golden bull would be a better name, it's the word for a young male bull with the connotations of growing power and virility that come with a young bull. We're not meant to picture a cute little baby cow, in other words, so much as a symbol of military power and sexual fertility. But whatever we call it, what's really interesting from a literary perspective is how these two stories contrast with each other. Moses is on the mountain getting instructions for the beautiful sanctuary where God's presence will dwell in the middle of the camp for as long as the people are in the wilderness. And then we get this. This comes from Exodus 32 verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took these from them, formed them in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to Yahweh. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. That last part is what's known as a euphemism, by the way rose up to revel. (laughs) This is a festival to this young bull power and fertility God, I'll remind you, and I'll let you kind of fill in the blanks of what sort of reveling uh, is being reveled here. But I was struck by what the Old Testament scholar Terence Fritham noticed about how this story contrasts with the tabernacle. He writes, at every key point, the people's building project contrasts with the tabernacle that God has just announced. This gives the account a heavily ironic cast. Number one, the people seek to create what God has already provided. Number two, they, rather than God, take the initiative. Number three, offerings are demanded instead of willingly presented. 
Number four, there are no elaborate preparations like for the tabernacle. Number five, the painstaking length of time needed for building becomes an overnight rush job. Number six, the careful provision for guarding the presence of the Holy One turns into an open-air object of immediate accessibility. Number seven, the invisible, intangible God becomes a visible, tangible image. Number eight, the personal, active God becomes an impersonal object that cannot see, hear, speak, or act. And then I would add number nine, the expert craftsmanship of people gifted by God to do the different work of the tabernacle is replaced with Aaron himself carving the bull. Now, this is all intentional. We are reading intentional and excellent literature when we read the Bible, even if it's a bit culturally foreign for us. And it forces us to consider the two very different perspectives and goals reflected by, on the one hand, God with the tabernacle, and on the other hand, the people with the golden bull. I would argue that what we're seeing are two different reasons to follow God. The one that God themselves intends, and the one that we humans often actually want. God is providing a means for God's self to live in the midst of the people, in a tabernacle in the center of the camp, where the people can come to worship, present requests, celebrate in the presence of their God. This is the same God who, in the story of Adam and Eve, is portrayed as longing to walk alongside them in the cool of the garden. It's the same God who was born in a little stable to a human mother, God with us. It's the same God who, in Jesus, gives of himself so that the veil of the temple might be ripped in two. The same God who sends the Holy Spirit to live inside us. God's answer to the question, why follow God, is that this is the one true God of the universe who desires to live in the midst of humanity, with their intimate presence closer than the air we breathe, but who desires this intimacy to be uncoerced, freely chosen, as any real intimacy must be. This is what Moses is experiencing himself, disappearing into the cloud on the mountainside, and it's what God and he are talking about with the plans for the tabernacle. God is offering the intimate, loving presence of the God of the universe. But let's look again at what the people down the mountain are looking for. Come, they say to Aaron, since we don't know what's happened to this Moses character. One scholar I read said, yes, the Hebrew is just as dismissive as the English translation makes it sound. Make us gods who will go before us. Now, at first, listen, that might not sound too different. God's intimate presence on the one hand, gods who will go before us on the other. But what I want to suggest today is that it's actually all the difference in the world. And it explains much of what comes next in this story and why this is such a big deal, and why it requires so much pleading on Moses' part to remedy. Because make us gods to go before us doesn't just contrast on the you know minor point of breaking all three of the first three commandments in one sentence. <laughs> it betrays what the people want from their gods. Gods to go before us is quite simply a military idiom. The gods go before you in battle. As they march on the promised land and through the hostile nations on the way, they want gods who will protect them and give them power. Presence is a means to that end. And then Aaron goes one better and breaks the fourth commandment to complete the set. This is a festival to Yahweh, he proclaims. These two things, God's presence and the gods protecting us in battle and giving us power over our enemies, they're one and the same. 
except they're not. It's like Simon the Magician in Acts 8, who comes to believe in Jesus and then sees the Holy Spirit being given to the believers and tries to buy that power off the apostles. The Holy Spirit was offering God's presence. Simon wanted the power. It's the lies of the snake in the garden. Eat of that tree and you will have power and knowledge and won't need to rely on the presence of this God who walks among you. Throughout the story of the Exodus, God has repeated their goal in all of this. It's a refrain that we have highlighted again and again. Why is God bringing plagues, setting the people free, birthing them as a new people through the waters of the sea, not just so that they would be free, but so that they would know me, Yahweh says, like children beloved by a parent, so that Egypt would know me as the true God over and against their false gods, so that all the world would know me. These are not goals of power. They are goals of presence. God's desire in all this is to be in the midst of the camp, present among the people who know Yahweh. The people want someone who will go before them, giving them power and protection, giving them what they want. Fritham, who was so helpful in pointing out the literary juxtapositions a few minutes ago, goes on to say right afterwards, the ironic effect is that the people forfeit the very divine presence they had hoped to bind more closely to themselves. But I think that he's wrong there. I think this is a theological misreading of what's going on. The people are not pursuing the same goal as God, but just going about it the wrong way. That is not the problem. The problem is that they and their desires are misaligned with God and God's desires. This theological misalignment is, I think, a key to understanding all the grumbling stories that we've seen over the course of the Exodus and that will continue going on in the Pentateuch. The people see God despite the pillar of cloud right in front of them, as failing in God's duties. They expect God to give them what they want, to give them power and protection, and God doesn't seem to be doing that, so they grumble. Why do you follow God? The juxtaposition of these two stories, tabernacle and golden bull, calls to us to consider, do we follow God because we desire the intimate presence of the true God of the universe? Or do we follow so that we might get the life we want? The church has too often gotten those two very different goals confused. Like Aaron, acting as if they are one and the same when they aren't. Following in order to get the life we want is going to eventually lead where it led for the Israelites, grumbling. (laughs) Because God didn't come through on what we expected. Disappointment when our life isn't what we thought we were signing up for when we decided to follow this God. But the problem isn't with God. It's that our expectations are misaligned, just like Israel's were. And yes, Jesus much later addresses this reality, this distinction, when he encouraged his followers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The order there matters. The promise is the intimate presence of the kingdom of God, not power and protection. So there's something of a tension. Yes, God promises to give us what we need. And yes, Jesus encourages us to come to God with our requests, but the intimate presence is primary. 
I guess it's kind of like the difference between a child who sees their parent as a glorified ATM machine as contrasted with one who values their relationship. And then one of the benefits of that relationship is that, yes, the parent wants to provide for their child's needs and sometimes not the needs, the wants and the whims of their child. The end result might be the same in one sense, but there's a pretty significant difference there too. What if we accepted God's offer of presence? What if we cultivated our ability to have God live in the midst of our camp? It wouldn't mean protection necessarily or that we get the life we want. But the people who have done this really leaned into what God is offering. The ones that I've heard of seem fairly unanimous that maybe paradoxically they found there exactly what they wanted or they discovered what they truly had wanted all along. That in the midst of triumph and tragedy, victory and defeat, joy and sorrow, those things faced in the presence of God are transformed in ways we could never expect or imagine.